I'd just like to begin by (coughs) acknowledging um, everyone's practice and, um, yeah, just that steadiness of showing up to to our experience and to the, the days here. It's not a not always an easy thing. And please feel free to make yourself comfortable if it's not already clear. Over the last um, couple of days, we've been um, primarily gathering and settling the the awareness, the mind, um, using the the breath, the body. And as we've been doing that, we've been cultivating that aspect of practice. Um, Sometimes I say that at this point and I kind of know what's going on. In some of your minds, I get it myself, it's kind of like, you know, cultivation, what are you talking about? Nothing's changed, my mind's as busy as it was when I arrived. Um, And yeah, I can definitely feel like that some of the time, and that's, you know, it's worth just naming that. Sometimes it can feel like nothing's changed. Um, And I I just want to name that, and kind of with a gentle question mark next to it sometimes a little bit difficult to also uh, really assess that part. Um, But as as we've said a couple of times, we're doing this kind of gathering, returning, coming back to the breath or the the footsteps or the body. Um, And as we do that, um, it allows more clear seeing and more possibilities of, of responding um, or more insight is another way that we've we've said that. Um, and I'd like this evening to um, kind of explore a little bit um, some of these questions around what shapes our experience actually. Yeah, what shapes experience? It's a very um, important question that um, these teachings are asking, and that these practices are. Um, opening us up to to explore. And one one aspect of or one aspect that shapes experience is attention. We've mentioned that already. Yeah, attention, uh, where it goes, and what it re- what it reveals. Okay. And I'd like to. Um, to kind of share a, something that a conversation I had uh, recently around attention, which kind of uh, points to part of the part of what's interesting about about it. So it's actually a conversation I had with my nephew and and two nieces, and they had just I was actually driving them from the airport home. Um, they just come back from. They have these crazy parents who take them trekking and all kinds of, you know remote 
parts of the world and they'd just come back from one of these treks and uh, my mum and I were driving them back my brother and his wife were in a taxi <laughs> and um, we were, you know, talking about what had happened what, you know, all these things they'd seen and done and experienced and one of the, of the things they really wanted to talk about their ages are between 12 and 19 so they're not little kids was um, that one day when they were on the trek their mum um, went off on her own to a higher pass that they weren't interested in going to and uh, when she was when she went off on her own she uh, she had a fall and she cut herself and then you know when she came back um, their dad had to patch her up and all of this kind of thing anyway that's what they obviously that was quite a highlight of the trip and so I wanted to know what had happened of course how did this happen so one of them said, oh, you know, we had this dog that attached, that adopted us for the, for the trek. And uh, when she went off, the dog went with her and, um, and the dog tripped her and caused her to fall. Yeah, that's what one, one of them said that. And then I, I can't remember who said what. So. And then another one said, no, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, when she went off, the dog went along with her, but it went on a higher path. And when it went on a higher path, it caused loose stones to tumble down um, the hillside, and one of them hit her, and that's how she hurt her head. Okay, it's a loose stone, yeah. And then the third one said, no, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, what happened was that um, the dog was above her on a path above, and she could hear the dog, and so she looked up at the dog, and then that caused her to trip and fall. Okay, so three different versions of what had happened. Okay. I think all of them, yeah, all of them featured the dog and a stone. <laughs> but they were quite different. So, when we got to their house, you know, it didn't take me long to ask my sister-in-law what actually happened. <laughs> the three different versions of how you, how you hurt your head. What actually happened? So this is the, this is the, the her version, is the dog was on a path above her, and it was, uh, there were some loose stones, and the stones fell on the path that she was on, and then she tripped over the loose stones and lost her balance. Okay, that was her version of events. So you can see there's bits of that from what each of the children had said, um, but yet they each had a different version of events, and I'm sure this is something that they talked about quite a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and yet we can see, yeah, how attention, how memory, how the mind works. Yeah. Here's something that happened. It's had quite an impact. Here's the story that mum told us when she came back and what happened. And then something stands out for each person and that becomes a different story. Yeah. And it becomes a different story in the mind. Yeah. So three quite different versions of the same event. And it reminded me um, this kind of uh, experience, um, which kind of points to you know what how attention works, and then how perception works based on attention. Yeah, so something we hear a story, something for some reason pulls our attention more, and then that's what we perceive, and that's that's what gets built up in our mind. Yeah, as the reality. This is what happened. 
As you can imagine, my, my nephew and nieces were arguing quite a bit <laughs> what had actually happened in the car because each one was convinced. No, no, I remember. Yeah, I remember what really happened. And it reminded, reminded me of this, um, of this teaching story of... Um, it's, it's an old Indian story, I think, of um, an experiment. I don't remember why this is being done, but there's three visually impaired... Um, people that are uh, who have been visually impaired their whole life, and they're each presented to an elephant, and then they're asked to describe what an elephant is. Yeah. So one goes over to the elephant, and what they feel is the trunk, and then they describe that. And another uh, goes over. I don't remember exactly what what they each do, but one's the trunk, say one's the leg, and one's maybe the ear. Yeah, which is like a fan. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's one of them. And they're each very, very sure that they have the correct version of what an elephant is based on the fact that they've only seen, conceived, touched, experienced one part of it. Yeah, does this make sense to people? Okay, so this is not only true of children whose parents take them trekking in wild places or visually impaired people who only get to touch part of an elephant, okay? This is true for all of us. This is how our mind works, yeah? And we see, feel, experience aspects of life, aspects of experience. Um, And yet uh, we think, yeah, we think that we see it all, that we understand, that we know, or that the version that we have of things is real, is the way something is. Yeah. So this is, yeah, this is pretty, um, pretty big stuff, yeah. And there's no expectation that you'll either um, take it on my word alone Um, or that it'll kind of immediately transform how we see life. But it's really something worth pondering, yeah, that we take, you know, we have experiences, we see things, we hear things, we think things, we remember things. And our, um, our tendency, our habit, our conditioned way of being is to take that as the way something is, yeah, or as reality. And so the question to us is, what happens if we kind of don't, if we kind of loosen that certainty to some degree about, about stuff, whether that's um, about ourselves, about somebody else, about an experience that we've had. Yeah, so for example, um, you know, what I said at the, at the beginning, that we may have a feeling that our mind is as restless or as busy as it was when we arrived, that nothing's changed. Yeah. So that can be something that we we have a sense of and we can just gently, gently have a little question mark next to that. Is that so? Yeah. Is that so? And remembering, or we can ask, what happens when we remember, when we take into account that um, that our experience is quite complex, yeah, more complex than we than we t- tend to take it to be. 
So there's, there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of detail in how experience unfolds, how perception unfolds, how perception of, of events unfolds. Um, and it's not always random. Yeah, sometimes it seems, you know, we can't figure out it's not random. It feels random, and sometimes it's not necessarily random. Um, what attracts our attention? Yeah, what we get, what kind of becomes pronounced in our experience. So I want to give an example of this. Um, and this is from a Darren Brown video I, I saw uh, re- recently. Everyone know who Darren Brown is? Yeah, he's he's actually a Dharma teacher in the guise of being a what is he? A magician? A hypnotist? A mentalist? A mentalist? Okay, <laughs> yeah, he's a very interesting person. So, in this in this um, experiment, he. Um, so he has the, the added benefit that he can kind of hypnotize people a little bit, so support them to be in a very suggestive uh, state of mind. Um, but he's working with this young man, and he's um, asking him to, um, to imagine a situation that feels quite overwhelming for him, uh, or to bring to mind in a situation that feels quite overwhelming for him in his life. Um, he doesn't have to say what it is. And then he uh, describes to this young man how, how we usually visualize things like that, yeah, things that feel overwhelming. And he says, you know, it feels, what it feels like is as if you're watching this on a huge, huge, huge screen, kind of in front and a little bit above you. Yeah, And it kind of has that, then we get the sense of kind of the weight yeah, on, on you, it's kind of above you. Then he said, what happens if you use your imagination and you shrink it to the size of an iPad and it's still the same situation, it's the same event, shrink it to the size of an iPad and you place it, um, he's standing up, this young man, you place it as if you were holding it kind of down here. Yeah, Same situation, but you're imagining um, the different perspective. And as you have that situation much smaller, down here below, you feel, and he's encouraging him to feel, the perspective that now he's looking down on this instead of that being above him, kind of weighing him down. Um, and then kind of really feel the body, feel the alignment and feel a sense of confidence coming up the body. And he really kind of supports what I'm doing now with my body, he kind of supports him to do this and to really kind of straighten up and open out and feel a real sense of of confidence and control, okay? And then he does a little experiment. So there's a a little box next to this young man. And in that box, Darren Brown puts an object. The audience can't see what it is either, and neither can the person. Um, And then he invites him to put his hand into the box and to feel what the object is, okay? And he describes it, you know, he asks him, what is it made of? It's metal. Um, What do you, you know... What's the temperature? It's cool. Uh, what do you think it is? And he says, oh, it's some kind of spoon. And then he asks him, is it a big spoon or a large spoon? And he's touching and he says, oh, I think it's quite a small spoon. And remember, he's in this very confident, kind of big view mental state. I think it's a small spoon. And in the end, he reaches the conclusion that it's a teaspoon. Okay? And then 
Darren Brown lifts the cover and the box and we see, the audience sees, that it's a, a quite, quite a large ladle. Yeah, and he, he was feeling it with, with his hand. Okay? So, this is really interesting. Okay, and, and if we just um, look at what it reveals about perception and about our mind and, and what shapes our experience. Remember I said, what shapes our experience? Yeah. So it's not just that, you know, contact of hand with object and the knowledge that we have, yeah, that we know what a ladle or a spoon is. It's also the state of mind that shapes perception. So when there's a feeling, in this case, of a lot of confidence, of being in control, and of kind of having a sense of looking with perspective, looking from up to down at something, that thing is perceived as small, even when it's large. Okay, this is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, very, very interesting. And I think we can take this example and reflect on it in our own lives. Yeah. When there's times when we feel um, like this young gentleman in the experience, if we feel confident and in control, yeah, we have agency, we feel empowered, then we might face a situation that is challenging yeah, and actually uh, maybe even feel excited about it. Yeah. Certainly not feel overwhelmed by it. Yeah, if we're in that kind of mind state. At other times, if we're feeling physically or emotionally or mentally drained, depleted, yeah, we might face the same kind of challenge. Yeah, same kind of challenge, and yet um, it will totally overwhelm us. Yeah. And I think if there's any parents in the room, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's a great... Um, yeah, in any kind of relationship we meet this. Yeah, we can meet a similar behavior or a similar dynamic with somebody. And yet the state of our body and our mind will impact how it's perceived, how it's being experienced. Yeah, and then also how we will respond to what is arising. Does that make sense in your experience? Yeah, okay. So this is something we all know, and yet it kind of, it, it, it's at the same time we know it, and at the same time it's kind of hidden. Yeah, we don't live from that knowledge very much. Yeah, we don't live from that knowledge very much, or we don't remember that this is what's partly going on, part of what's going on, is this. So a way of saying that is there's always a way of looking. I think we used, I used this, ex- this language in the opening talk. There's always a way of looking that's contributing to the shaping of experience, that's impacting the shaping of experience, what we perceive, that affects what we perceive and how we meet it. And this isn't just interesting, but it actually really opens up possibilities for us. Possibilities of freedom, possibilities of well-being that are not dependent on external causes. That are not dependent on external causes. So maybe just one more example because I can't resist. 
Um, and this is from one of my favorite teachers, Pema Chodron. She's a teacher in the Tibetan tradition, and she describes um, being with her nephew on a um, on a boat, I think. And she has a lot of anxiety around water and boats, and he loves it. And so they're standing side by side, and it's a, it's quite rocky. And she's feeling really anxious and unhappy, and he's feeling really exhilarated and, you know, excited and happy. And they're describing to each other um, the physical sensations, yeah, that they have. And the physical sensations are the same. I find this really interesting. Yeah, the the heartbeat is the be- the heart is beating fast for both of them. The there's kind of this movement in the belly <laughs> for both of them. Um, there's heat in the body for both of them. So the same physical stimulation, the same event, and yet interpreted differently. Yeah, and in this case, the the way of looking is 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 kind of to do with maybe habit or past conditioning. Yeah, so for her, it's fear and anxiety for him. It's excitement and um, kind of energizing. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's not in the thing. Yeah, it's not in the thing. Not the thing out there. Not even the thing in here. Yeah, not even the physical sensations necessarily. But in how they're being how how they're being looked at, how they're being filtered. I should say I should say not just. It's not just in the thing not just in the physical sensations. So, how does this relate to to our practice? Let's bring it back to to here, to being here, and to things that we experience um, when we sit here and close our eyes and bring the attention to to the breath and the body. Um, And particularly look look at things that are challenging for us, moments or... um, mind states that are challenging for us, such as, for example, sleepiness. Anyone felt sleepy in the meditation? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Uh, Restlessness. Anyone felt restless? Yeah. Yeah. Um, A desire for something. Yeah, desire for something else, like the bell to ring. (laughs) Oh, that's my favorite one. Or lunch to arrive, or you know, the the sun to come, or the rain to come, or you know, whatever it may be, desire. Yeah. And with that desire, um, the other side of desire is aversion. Yeah. So anyone had aversion, aversion to body pain, aversion to sleepiness, aversion to sitting still, aversion to walking meditation. Yeah. So this this also comes. Um, and then another common kind of arising challenge in meditation will be a sense of, of confusion and lack of clarity and kind of not being sure, what am I doing, what am I supposed to do, um, what's meant to happen, uh, all of that. Anyone had that? Yeah. Yeah. So I've just named five things, um, and I'm just going to kind of say them again. Um, just to really highlight them. And these are really, really common tendencies of mind. Um, We see them very clearly in meditation practice. Very helpful to remember they're not limited to meditation practice. They actually um, are present in our lives all the time. Um, So I'll just name them again. Um, 
And I'll, I'll name them as two pairings and then one independent one. And with the pairings, I find it actually helpful to see them as a spectrum. So I'll say them again. From sleepiness and low energy to restlessness and agitation and anxiety. Yeah, that's a spectrum, actually, of um, different balances of calm and energy. Okay, so when we're sleepy, there's a lot of calm, there's not much energy. And then that movement flows along to when there's a lot of energy and not much calm, which would be the restlessness. Okay, so these are two, but we can see them not as two separate things, but they're very, very connected. Yeah, and we find ourselves along somewhere along that spectrum a lot of the time. When we're somewhere around the middle, that's fine. Yeah, we don't experience that as as difficult or challenging, because there's a, a then there'll be a reasonable balance between the calm and the energy. But when we're more at the extremes, that when, that's when that becomes um, much more difficult and challenging. And the language in the in the teachings, they're called hindrances or obstacles. Um, and Nathan and myself and other teachers as well we actually like to refer to them as opportunities and I'll, I'll explain more about that as, as I, I speak about them but um, yeah, really helpful to remember they're very common Yeah, they're not just your personal problem so the sleepiness to agitation is one the desire and aversion is another so that's kind of very much like I said, sometimes more like two sides of a coin, because if there's one, there'll be the other. It's just that one will be more obvious. Yeah. So desire for the bell to ring um, is actually an aversion to the experience right now, whatever that is. Yeah. So we can see that. Or aversion to a painful sensation in the body is a desire to be free of pain. Yeah. So it's not necessarily they're not necessarily bad things. Yeah. But they. They take over our experience. That's why they're, they're called hindrances. And the fifth one, uh, which I've been calling confusion and lack of clarity, kind of feeling lost, uh, is usually called doubt um, in, in one word. But it's, yeah, it has this um, confusing, murky feeling yeah, to it. And the Buddha... Um, had a beautiful simile for them, which I I love, and I I have to say I use it almost on every retreat I teach, but I don't get tired of it. Um, So this is how he described them. He said he used the image of the mind as a clear forest pool. Yes, the mind in its natural state is like a beautiful pool in the forest, very, very clear. Yeah. When desire is present in the mind, it's as if someone threw a colored dye into that pool. Yeah, and so from clear water, it became it becomes colored water. When aversion is present in the mind, it's as if the water of the pool is boiling. Yeah, I, I love images. That's why I love this image. So the water in the pool is boiling. It's kind of bubbling up and steaming. And so again, we lose the clarity. Yeah, we can't see through that clear water, what's there. When restlessness yeah, is 
is there. Yeah, restlessness, agitation. It's as if there's a constant strong wind blowing across the water, the surface of the pool, and it's causing waves. Yeah, so there's constantly this strong wind, and the waves are blowing, and we can't see. Again, we, we lose, we cannot see what's there. Yeah, we cannot see through the, the clear water. When um, tiredness, sluggishness, low energy is present, it's like a pool. You can see this is my favorite image. <laughs> Drum roll. It's like the, the, the pool is covered with algae and kind of vegetation that's kind of covering it up and smothering it. Yeah, and it becomes really stagnant. Yeah, loses its freshness. And again, we, ca- we lose the capacity to see clearly. Yeah, when there's low energy, tiredness, sluggishness there. And when there's confusion, lack of clarity, um, sense of being lost, of frozen, being frozen, um, it's as if someone kind of put their hand in the pool and really agitated the bottom. So it becomes very, very muddy. Yeah, very, very muddy. And again, the water's muddy and we can't see clearly through the, through the pool to what's at the bottom. And so I love this image because what it really offers us is to see what happens to the mind when, um, when these energies are present. Yeah. What happens is they color our perception. And what we experience, we experience via a particular energy that's there. So again, they are a way of looking. So when tiredness and sluggishness is there, we see experience via that lens. Yeah. When restlessness is there, we see, we perceive via that lens. It shapes our experience. It shapes our experience. And again, I'm going to use this example of, of the bell ringing because it's just such a good example. Yeah. And we all had times here in the meditation hall where we've sat here and it feels like time isn't moving. Yeah? Time isn't moving. So at that point, check. If that's what's going on, typically one of these hindrances slash opportunities are present. Yeah? And they affect our perception of time. Yeah? Suddenly time isn't moving. Yeah? They affect our perception of time. And so another way of saying it is the state of the mind becomes the world that we're in. Yeah, the state of the mind becomes the world that we're in. And in extreme cases, we know that, yeah, when, there's, when we're very restless and agitated or very aversive. That colors anything, yeah, anything. Again, another example I often use, but it's such a good example. Sometimes Nathan makes me a wonderful cup of coffee in the morning, and if I'm in a bad mood, that is like a really terrible thing to do. You know, why? why? Who said I wanted a cup of coffee right now? (laughs) You know, so that, you know, that's the, the, the shape of the mind, the way of looking that's present, colors experience, shapes experience. And if we're not aware of it, then we buy into it. Yeah, we believe that's what's happening. And then the whole cycle of our reactions 
yeah, gets fed. Yeah. And actually then the way we respond, the way we react, would then, you know, yeah, if, if I think a cup, of, a cup of coffee is a terrible thing first thing in the morning and I react in that way, it's pretty sure that at least the next few hours of my day aren't going to be very nice. Yeah. Shaping that, shaping that reality. So the state of the mind becomes the state of the world, just like that Darren Brown example. Yeah, he, he took he he can take things and make them really really clear, magnify them in that way. Yeah, if my mind state is one of being in control, feeling confidence, having a big perspective, that affects what I see. Little things and big things. So this is partly why um, we like to call the, the hindrances not hindrances but opportunities because if we learn to recognize them, yeah, and that's part of what we're doing here, if we learn to recognize them and know, ah, that's what's going on, that becomes an opportunity for freedom and release and well-being. Because then I don't buy into what I perceive quite so much. So if I recognize, oh, right now, there's aversion in the mind or there's desire in the mind. Yeah. And that's affecting me in a certain way. Then I take it with a pinch of salt. <laughs> I don't believe it so full-heartedly, whatever the it is that unfolds from that, um, from that perspective, from that way of looking. And part of what we're doing here is through bringing the attention to the breath and the body, we're giving ourselves another um, angle, another handhold on experience. Yeah. If we're if we're aware of the body, then we're not just stuck in the mind. Yeah. That's one thing. If we're aware of the body, then. Um, we can also feel in the body when one of these mind states is present. Yeah, we start to recognize, we start to get to know them, both mentally and physically, or in the body space. So when we recognize these states, that's a gateway to release. We can, we can differentiate between this is what's happening, this is reality, and the mind state is currently shaping my experience. Yeah, it's affecting what's happening. And we can cultivate yeah, both ways of looking yeah, that are more wholesome. Yeah, so we can cultiv- cultivate antidotes. We can cultivate ways of looking that are more wholesome, that lead to more well-being. And we can also cultivate ways of relating to these ways of looking that are not so wholesome. Yeah, like the hindrances, opportunities that um, kind of reduce their hold on us. Does that make sense to people? Yeah, they bring less dukkha, more well-being. So one thing that really helps with that is remembering um, this is universal, not personal. Yeah, this is not my mind state right now. Yeah, because part of what happens with that process of and the way of looking is that there's identification. Yeah. This is who I am. This is what this is. Yeah. It becomes very limited. Very, very limited. If we can remember, ah, this is just restlessness right now. This is desire right now. 
Yeah, it's not who I am. Okay, really, really be helpful, and I'll say more about that. And yeah, and highlighting again that we can work with these. Yeah, they're opportunities because we can change our relationship to them, and as we change the relationship, that allows them to move and to be less solid, less um, to stick around, less. So our practice is recognizing both the way of looking that's present and what the relationship is to it and how that's affecting experience. And generally, we experience these hindrances um, to some degree as unpleasant. Yeah, to some degree as unpleasant. So I think with some of them, it's kind of obvious tiredness. We usually, if we're trying to meditate, (laughs) we'll experience as unpleasant. Same with restlessness. Um, aversion, I think most of us would classify as unpleasant as well as doubt. Um, the one that can be tricky is desire. Um, but I think even then for most of us that will feel unpleasant because it's not what we're intending to do. Yeah, We want to be here and meditate and we don't actually want the mind to go off and fantasize about things. So often there'll be a struggle with that. Um, as well, even if the process of the fantasy itself might feel pleasant. And another layer of this, when we pay attention, this is something we'll unpack later on in the retreat, when we pay attention to what happens in the body and the mind when these hindrances are present, in the relationship to them, there'll be a sense of contraction and tension in the body. Okay, There'll be a sense of contraction and tension with that unpleasantness of them. Yeah. Or that sense of like in the Darren Brown thing of being weighed down by something, something sitting on top of us. And this contraction, this tension, is um, the word that Nathan used yesterday, dukkha. D-U-K-K-H-A, Pali word. You did use it yesterday, didn't you? I can't remember. I think so. Hopefully I didn't imagine it. Anyway, I'll use it now and I'll explain it again. So this contraction, this tension is is the dukkha, is the um, best translation or best translations for it are either the sense of ill-being, so the opposite of well-being, ill-being, or a sense of the unreliability or unsatisfactoriness of things. When we kind of feel that uh, this isn't really uh, leading to well-being, um, and the range of dukkha is, you know, ill-being, unease, discomfort, stress, um, suffering. The whole that whole range is included in that one word. So there's dukkha, and there's also the possibility of the end of dukkha, and that's actually why we're here. (laughs) Dukkha and the end of dukkha. And I just actually want to kind of bring that in here a little bit in relation to the practice that we were doing today, the the pleasant breath. Um, And just to open actually to hear just two or three voices maybe about 
that um, relationship? How was it or what happened with this practice of the pleasant breath for you? Yeah, anything that stood out. doesn't have to be a release of dukkha, like I just said, but something that stood out when you were practicing with the long breath, the pleasant breath, um, the breath as energy. Did anything stand out for you? Yes. <clears throat> Sharpened my attention. Mm-hmm. Increased my ability to pay attention. Mm-hmm. To the breath in particular or to everything. to everything? Okay. So prioritizing, um, attending to the breath as a pleasant breath, sharpen the attention in general. Great. Thank you. Anything else? It was a nice feeling. It felt in harmony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was something that felt harmonious about yeah, doing that. That's enough, yeah. There was a blurring. There was a blurring. Yeah, in a sense of harmony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Yes, Raising. I felt I was able to expand more, mm-hmm. more um, with ease. Mm. So there was a sense of more expansion, yeah, yeah and more ease. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So one thing, and this is just an example of what meditation techniques can do. So not every meditation technique works for every person all the time, just to, to really say that. I don't know if we've said that so far. But one thing um, that can happen with a technique like the, the, the pleasant breath, yeah, tuning in more to the pleasant aspect of the breathing or to the breathing as energy rather than as a um, physical sensation, um, it increases, can increase a sense of ease, it can increase a sense of space, Yeah, there's more space, um, and it can change the focus and the quality of attention. Yeah, I'm kind of, We just heard all of these here, and I swear I wrote them down before. So this is interesting. Yeah, so it can do that. Yeah, and we can say that when we practice something like the pleasant breath, that becomes a way of looking. Okay, we're looking. We're looking at experience via this particular lens. Yeah, of looking for um, a breath that is more pleasant or more comfortable. Yeah, or longer, or deeper. And then that has an effect on what we actually perceive and experience, or can have. So similarly, yeah, I'm just touching on that, you know, because it it's, a, it's a relevant example, at least for some people here. Similarly, um, when we look at the hindrances slash opportunities as opportunities, we're changing our way of relating to them. Yeah. As, as I said, mostly we will experience them as unpleasant. And when we experience something as unpleasant, uh, we respond, we react to it with resistance. Yeah, We don't want it. So there'll be resistance. There'll be a sense of, oh, this isn't what should be here. Yeah. This isn't what I want. 
right now. And there'll be resistance, there'll be a pushing away. If we, and this can take a lot, (laughs) a lot of kind of coming back to this as well, we look at them and we see them as opportunities rather than as problems. Yeah, That already can shift the dynamic. Yeah, And again, if we reflect on our own experience, when we're able to look at something as an opportunity rather than a problem, what happens? Very similar things to what people said here. Yeah, We can see more, our, our capacity to pay attention increases. There's more ease, there's more space, Yeah, there's more harmony. Yeah, All of these will arise. Yeah, So it's something we know from our own experience. It's something we can kind of train, for lack of a better word, train ourselves to do more. Yeah, in relationship to the difficult. And then when we see that that works yeah, in our own experience, then that kind of nourishes that becoming uh, more of a habit. So when we see these so-called hindrances as opportunities, um, both changes the relationship and opens us up to work with them in a skillful way. And I just want to kind of break that down with the language that we've been using on the retreat so far. So, you know, we notice something's going on, right? There's some agitation in the system. And so we pause, yeah, and we notice what is here. And we can check, are any of these energies present? Yeah. We pause and we notice what is here. Is there agitation? Is there aversion? Is there desire? Is there low energy? Is there confusion, a lack of clarity? We pause and we check. What is present? What's the underlying way of looking? And then we relax and allow. Yeah. So we breathe, we relax tension. Yeah. And that creates more space. Yeah. Increases the space. Which then lessens the sense of identification that I mentioned earlier and Nathan mentioned yesterday. Because part of what's going on, and I'm going to show it with my body now, because that's how I work, is, you know, I feel agitated, I feel restless, and I want this meditation to be over, or whatever it is. And what happens is this, yeah? I get tense, I get contracted, there's much less space and I get identified, that is all the presence of the sense of self. Yeah, Latching on, identifying with this experience, which is just a way of looking in the mind, that's shaping experience. If I can relax, breathe, allow to some degree, that's not the end result, but it's a really important space, that step, relax and open up to some degree, Do you see what happens? There's more space. There's more possibility of movement and attending. Responding. So it's it's really simple. And like a lot of the simple things we've said, they're not easy, but we can learn to do this. We pause and we recognize what is present. And we relax and allow it to be here. And that reduces the identification which allows, offers more possibility for release and for change. 
So another way of breaking this down, I'm going to say the same thing in another another way. Yeah. So we pause and we recognize, that's the first step. And then we... Um, we relax and we accept. Yeah, accept or allow what is present right now and we breathe with it. And then we can bring in investigation. Okay, we can bring in investigation. What, um, how is this shaping experience right now? How is this shaping experience? What does it feel like in the body? Is there contraction? And what are my, what are my possibilities? This is all part of investigation. What happens if I take a deep breath? Yeah. What happens if I shift my attention to something else? Yeah. Then I'm, I'm kind of paying attention to right now. Um, and all of this supports us to not identify. Yeah. Or to at least reduce the degree of identification. Yeah. Remembering this is not permanent and it's not who I am. It's shaping experience, but it's only a way of looking that's arising right now. Yeah. So the identification will be very much um, in the resistance, the pushing away of something, or the being pulled towards. Yeah. I really need that bell to ring now. Yeah. I really need to know what's for lunch. It smells so good. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it is that. That's where the identification will be, in that movement. And if we start to recognize that, we can relax that. As we relax that, more space, more ease, more harmony. So this shifting of the relationship from um, resistance to interest is really, really crucial. Yeah, From resistance to interest, to curiosity, to playfulness. So I want to give an example, and, and I'll end with that, um, give an example of this in really breaking it down again with a particular example. Um, and also to just say that this second way I broke it down makes an acronym called RAIN of the process. Some of you may be familiar with it. This process of um, attending to ways of looking, mind states that arise and, and kind of shape experience in a certain way. And the rain is recognize, accept or allow, investigate, non-identify. Okay, those are the four steps. And so if we take an example of um, an uncomfortable sensation in the body, yeah, it can be mild discomfort, it can be um, more intense physical pain. So there'll be that unpleasant sensation and what will arise towards it will usually be some form of aversion, yeah, which can also feed restlessness. Yeah, but stay with the aversion for now. So say my knee is painful, and there'll be aversion to that. So the first step of recognizing, we can use the pause to do that, is to recognize, ah, there's aversion here. Yeah, maybe aversion mixed with restlessness. Yeah, or mixed with desire, like I said, but recognizing that's what's here. This is uncomfortable and I don't want it. Yeah, that's what's going on. That's what's going on. And even as I say it now, if you say that to yourself, can you feel that then the allow and accept follows up from that, like almost like the, the breath, yeah, the in and out breath? Because once I recognize, Ah, this is uncomfortable and I don't want it. 
there's a version here. Then the relax, allow, the allow and the accept almost immediately follows. There's a little bit more space and then we can increase that space by saying, okay, can I accept that this is here in this moment? It doesn't mean that I sign up for knee pain (laughs) for the rest of my life, but just in this moment I accept that that's what's present. There's the knee pain and there's the aversion to it. Yeah, so I accept the pain, I accept the aversion. Now, in this moment. And I feel if that um, offers more space yeah, in the being. And I can use things like the relax, relaxing the tension, like the breathing to support that, allowing and accepting. And then I can bring in investigation. Yeah can start bringing in investigation. Okay. So here's the aversion to the uncomfortable sensation. Is that everything that's going on? That's one thing we can we can check. Yeah. It brings an investigation. Is there somewhere in the being right now that feels okay? Yeah. And we can use the body for this again. Is my hand feeling okay right now? Or is my hand also feeling aversion or pain? We can check. We can start investigating. What else is here? We can start investigating the actual sensations. We can check what happens every time um, I breathe with this. And if you're enjoying the breath as energy, I can breathe in and out of that painful place. What happens to that? And what happens to the aversion? So we play with it in that way. We explore it in that way. And as we do that, we can remind ourselves, this is not me. Yeah? We can play with the identification. This is just passing, just like the weather just like the clouds and the rain and the sun. You know, we've got a great model here for the mind in nature. Yeah? It's not who I am. It's not me. It's not personal. doesn't mean I'm a good meditator or a bad meditator, a good person or a bad person, because that gets in there and it increases the pain, increases the contraction and limits the space. This is a human phenomenon moving right now through this mind and this body. Yeah. So non-identifying, whatever way that helps, whatever way that supports that process. And noticing what happens. Yeah. Noticing what, ha- what happens when we do that. Yeah. When we recognize, when we accept, sometimes just one of those steps or two are enough. Yeah. And we can just stay there in that place. And sometimes we keep going and we explore. And what happens to the sense of ease, the sense of space, the sense of possibility? Yeah, there can still be pain. Doesn't necessarily go away. But the way of looking changes. Yeah, way of looking changes, and that makes all the difference. So let's stop here for this evening and just have a 
a quiet moment together to bring this to a close. practice together, nourish, ease, and harmony, and peace in our own hearts, bodies, and minds, and in the bodies, hearts, and minds of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your listening and for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.